sponsored by CuriosityStream. Now with my streaming service, Nebula. I'm even more conflicted about the future of Mac OS than I am the future of iPad OS, and for almost exactly the opposite reasons. I've already done the iPad OS video, but hit subscribe so you don't miss any of the series. Now, on one hand, you have traditional computer users who've grown up on Apple and the Mac, pros and power users who, for the last couple of decades, have been well served by the relative openness of the Mac, that beyond its lickably slick interface and integrations with the rest of Apple's ecosystem was BSD Unix under the hood, and for the last decade, Windows anytime you wanted it as well. And on the other hand, there's a new generation of Mac users who've been haloed over from the iPhone and iPad, far more casual in mainstream users who value things like simplicity, security, consistency with iOS that provided many of the benefits of a traditional computer while still being friendlier and easier to use and even grow with if you wanted to. And I'm not actually sure how much of this is even debated inside Apple right now. Not since Steve Jobs dropped an iPad in front of the Mac team and asked, point blank, why can't you do this? But here's the thing, Apple already has iOS, so who and how much does it really benefit the broader market to continuously make macOS more like it? How much does a MacBook have to become like an iPad before announcing an iPadOS clamshell just makes the kind of sense that's more? John Gruber of Daring Fireball has often said the lightness of iOS is what lets the Mac stay heavy. But do the current rumors about macOS show that it's about to get every bit as light? I'm Renee Ritchie, and this is macOS 16 and what's needed next. The very first beta version of macOS, then OS X, was Kodiak, like the bear. The code names, though, were based on big cats. Cheetah first. Steve Jobs and Apple's crack marketing team, as senior vice president of software engineering, Craig Federighi loves to call them, liked the big cat names so much, they ended up using them as the brand names. Puma, Tiger, Leopard, Mountain Lion. In retaliation, or maybe just capitulation, Apple's software team switched to wine-based code names. Pinot, Chablis, Zinfandel, Cabernet, all except for Snow Leopard. But that's an entirely different story and another video. Then, when we got to the ninth version, Apple switched brand names away from Big Cats and two California landmarks, Mavericks, El Capitan, Sierra, Catalina. And when we got to the 11th version, they also changed code names to Apples, Gala, Fuji, Lobo, at least up until a couple of years ago when everything changed. See, until then, iOS code names had been based on ski resorts, watchOS code names mostly on beaches, and tvOS, I don't know, random word generator, maybe Yahtzee. Then, that couple of years ago, everything changed to ideals, watchOS glory, iOS hope, macOS liberty. But for the vast majority of Apple's operating systems, no one sees any of that because the only thing that's made public is the version number iOS 13, iPadOS 13, tvOS 13, watchOS 6, for everything but the Mac, which is currently at 10.15. And here's where I'm gonna argue that, while codenames and brand names are hella cool, they're also a lot more overhead. If someone talks about iOS 12, you know exactly which version it is, which version is before it, which version comes after it, because you can count. If someone talks about macOS Mavericks, well, you have to start consulting your memory banks or maybe run to Google. The full version number, 10.whatever, has been meaningless ever since Apple took macOS to .11. So I'm hoping they just drop not only the brand names like Mammoth or Monterey or Skyline, but the prefixes and make the conventions consistent across the full software lineup. iOS 14, iPadOS 14, tvOS 14, watchOS 7, and yeah, macOS 16. 
And sure, we'll lose the Craig jokes about macOS weed or Laguna Seca, but you'll always have that crack marketing team and their photos to make fun of. Come at me in the comments. macOS Catalina, like iOS 13, has been tough. And it feels like we've been saying that even more about the Mac for the last few years, everything from Discovery D to windowing servers. The running joke is that every year should just be a snow year in reference to the widely held misconception that OS X Snow Leopard had no new features, just a ton of stability improvements. And yet, it just had so few features, Steve Jobs and the marketing team came up with no new features as a way to cover for that. But again, another video. Anyway. The reason for a lot of the pain in macOS over the last few years is because Apple has been systematically rebuilding the entire operating system one module at a time, which is a lot like rebuilding a plane while it's in flight. See, there's no next next yet, which was the operating system Apple bought to replace the old system software and which became OS X, now macOS. That was a complete rip and replace, a software transplant. But instead of ending macOS and starting something new, again, Apple is instead ending parts of macOS and replacing them with things that are new. APFS, the Apple file system, is replacing HFS+. Catalyst, or UIKit on the Mac, is replacing AppKit. DriverKit and its ilk are replacing kernel-level access, and more demons are being rewritten from the ground up than, I don't know, the last season of Lucifer on Netflix. I'm guessing, especially in light of what's coming next, the hope is to get everyone to the other side of all of this as quickly as possible, no matter how painful that makes it along the way. So my ask here is for Apple to devote as many resources as possible to making every part of the transition as solid as possible to reduce as much pain as possible along that way. The biggest rumor heading into macOS 16, see how easy a transition that was, by far is that Apple will preview a version compiled and optimized to run on their own custom ARM processors instead of the current x86 processors from Intel. Now, Apple has done exactly these kinds of silicon migrations twice before, from the Motorola 1600 series to PowerPC and from PowerPC to Intel. And each and every one of those came with its own fair share of promise, potential, complexity, and frustration. With ARM, some hope Apple will be able to update and iterate faster, offer better, more integrated, more differentiated features, and optimize for both higher performance and better power efficiency. Others fear they'll just lose the ability to run Windows. High-end niche software just won't ever be ported over. And Apple will use the transition to further lock macOS down the way iOS has always been locked down. So basically, the sum of all hopes and fears and the anticipation of transition being either more or less stressful than the transition itself. My guess is moving macOS to custom ARM processors will prove a huge boon for modern mainstream Mac customers the ones who come from iOS and live in apps and on the web. And it may well prove incredibly painful for traditional Power and Pro users who work across a bunch of development environments and in a bevy of already barely supported apps. But we'll just have to wait and see. About the only other rumors making the rounds are related to apps. First, that iMessage will be going Catalyst, which is the marketing name for UIKit on the Mac. In other words, porting over the iOS Messages app to the Mac, which should mean it finally gets feature parity with the iOS app relaunched years and years ago on the iPhone and iPad. You know what I'm saying? Open bracket, sent with lasers, close bracket. My hope here is that it doesn't also remove features that are currently Mac only, namely screen sharing, but that Apple actually makes the feature available in both the Mac and iOS versions. Can I get another finally? Also, that Apple at some point goes back and improves the very bad, not good original Catalyst beta apps from two years ago and the still bad, not great iTunes fragment apps from last year, where the UI kit versions are just like the app kit versions, just none of them are spectacular yet. Second, 
that the new features rolling out to the iOS versions of the apps will also roll out to the macOS versions, including things like translations in Safari. And of course, I'm still personally hoping for media handoff as well, the kind I talked about in the iOS 14 video last week. Hit that subscribe button. Seriously. I'm also gonna add windowing here as well. Apple has made small improvements over the years, including full screen support and side-by-side -side apps, but windowing overall still isn't great. It's 2020, and the only way to change an app in side-by-side -side mode remains destroying the layout completely and starting over, like an animal. Even iPadOS, which has a far, far more constrained windowing model, provides better than that. It just feels like something Apple could redo completely and devote an entire keynote temple to. This year, macOS reinvents the window. You're welcome. Remember when Coke went to new Coke and everyone hated it so damn much, they turned around and relaunched the original as Coke Classic? No, ask your parents or Wikipedia. Now, I'm not suggesting the most recent versions of macOS are new Coke, an attempt to make a sweeter, more mass market friendly version to more broadly appeal to the mainstream because new Coke ended up appealing to precisely no one. And I do think the most recent versions of macOS do hold a lot of appeal for people entering the Mac market. But I also recognize the pain they're causing to traditional Mac and computer users, the ones who always saw the Mac as the best of both worlds, the shiniest, easiest to use graphical interface over the most open and in-depth operating system. And that second part seems to be closing down bit by bit, year after year, from gatekeeper to system integrity protection, to read-only boot volumes, to the loss of 32-bit apps, to how privacy permissions are actualized. Now, sure, a lot of that can be worked around, especially by the people sophisticated enough to disable or otherwise deal with those constraints. In other words, people who should be working around them, but not everything. For example, 32-bit audio plugins and games are just dead in the water. And as far as I can tell, there's not even a way for the community to keep them going. Now, I'm not advocating Mac OS stay locked in the past. Apple's savage willingness to jettison the old rather than drag it behind them, kicking and screaming so they can get more quickly to the new has been a huge advantage for many of us, maybe all of us over the years. I am just recognizing that with each of these changes, traditional Mac users worry more and more that their traditional computing environment is being taken away from them. And unlike mainstream Mac users who, if things were ever to get too complex, could always go to the iPad, there's just no classic Mac for power users to run to. There's just Linux. And that might be perfectly fine for Apple, the way Windows has been perfectly fine for people who felt underserved by hardcore gaming and VR on the Mac. And there's probably some analogy to be made about how iPadOS getting heavier and macOS getting lighter leaves less room for both brand new users and nerdy traditional users on either side. Instead, I'll just wonder out loud if there isn't some way for the company that just relaunched the Mac Pro to also figure out macOS Pro for exactly the same type of niche. Just not atoms, but bits. And hey, I told you up front, I was conflicted. Same way I am about all the huge platforms that control my destiny. And that's exactly why I'm helping build Nebula, the amazingly cool new streaming video service with a group of like-minded education creators like Tierzu, Real Engineering, Lindsay Ellis, TJ1, Braincraft, Polymatter, many, many more. It's a place where we can try out new things without having to worry about the tyranny of the algorithm or being demonetized or just being told to stay in our YouTube lane. Case in point, I just did my very first Nebula original, part of the working title series, and it's all about one of my favorite TV shows, Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And it's just something I could never post here on this channel because YouTube would have just no idea what to do with it. But Nebula is also a place where we can post all of our regular videos, videos just like this, without any ads or sponsorships at all. In fact, 
new ad-free, sponsor-free content from amazing creators goes up not just every week, but every day, multiple times a day, which is great if you're bored and just waiting for other services to update. We've even been posting special and extended versions of our videos. Like I've been posting the full-length versions of my interviews on Nebula, 45-minute chats with iJustine, Brian Tong, Walt Mossberg, and more to come. Again, things that would just get buried and punished here by the algorithm. And now, because Nebula comes bundled with CuriosityStream, you can also get access to its thousands of documentaries and series by people like the legendary David Attenborough and Canada's own Chris Hatfield, all for just $19.99 a year. A year. Seriously, it's the absolute best deal in streaming today. Just go to curiositystream.com slash Rene Ritchie for unlimited access to the world's top documentaries and nonfiction series. And now, Nebula as well. Enter the promo code Rene Ritchie to start your membership completely free for the first 31 days. Thanks, Curiositystream, and thanks to all of you for your support. See you next video.